Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? John Adams said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of the fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense. The habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello, and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable <laughs> leaders. I'm Scott Monty. If you aren't subscribed yet to the Timeless and Timely newsletter where I regularly write about these topics, just go to scottmonty.com and subscribe. This week, we are exploring humility. Humility is one of the ten virtues that ancient Greek philosophers deemed to be the most essential. Just in case you're keeping notes, the other virtues are wisdom, justice, fortitude, self-control, love, positivity, hard work, integrity, and gratitude. In 1927, T.S. Eliot wrote, Humility is the most difficult of all virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of oneself. And so humility is an underrated trait in leaders. I mean, no one brags about humility, right? With the ubiquity of social media, we're probably accustomed to self-promoters and would-be leaders telling us how great they are. Um, you know, it, it, it's the stereotypical type A personality that's associated with leadership, for better or worse. And, and they're filled with the opposite of humility. And what is the opposite of humility? Well, simply put, it's pride. One of the seven deadly sins, and in case you're keeping track there, the others are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, and envy. Now, pride is often considered the worst of the bunch, the father of all sins. C.S. Lewis said pride leads to every other vice. And pride is closely associated with two other terms, the Greek hubris and the Latin vanitas. The Greeks viewed hubris as placing oneself above the gods, denigrating their standing and authority. And today we view hubris as pride accompanied with arrogance, essentially the opposite of humility. So imagine a world in which all leaders display humility which impacts business in tangible ways. Ways like attracting and retaining talent, driving diversity and inclusion, enhancing performance management, developing teamwork and consensus, and improving brand reputation. That is the world that Marilyn Gist is advocating for. 
Marilyn Gist, Ph.D., is a professor emerita at Seattle University, where she was formerly associate dean at the Albers School of Business and Economics and executive director at the Center for Leadership Formation. She led the development of Seattle University's Leadership Executive MBA program from its inception in 2006 to the rank of 11th best in the nation, per U.S. News and World Report. She speaks and consults widely and was previously a professor at the University of North Carolina and the University of Washington. And she's the author of The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility. Marilyn, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thank you, Scott. It's a delight to be here. How are you today? I am great. All the better for speaking with you, no doubt. Um, Fantastic. So tell me, how how did you get started on this journey to humility? Where, where did the topic kind of strike you? Well, you know, I have worked with uh, executive students, executive audiences for 25 years, and uh, most of that time have been uh, in Seattle on the West Coast, but also a number of other programs I've guest lectured at. And one of the fun things of that is that you meet uh, mid to senior managers from a variety of companies, and you hear a lot of stories Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, about the places they work, the people they work for. So I think uh, I'm holding lots of secrets at this point where people have shared what they do and don't like about uh, where they've worked. And over time, one of the things that struck me was I would hear consistent things uh, from leaders within certain companies, and those things might be good or they might be bad. Occasionally they they were kind of scattered and neutral, But uh, I began to wonder, why is it that people coming from company X are always so positive about the people they work for, the culture, uh, the way the organization is doing business, uh, as opposed to, say, people from company Y who come in and have a lot of negative things to say about uh, the people they're working for or the values or ethics in the company. Uh, Often I would hear, You know, it has a big name. It looks great on my resume. I'm here for two or three years, and then I'm out of here. Uh, Or the mission statement's on the wall, but people don't really believe it. They don't walk the talk. Uh, You can't trust people. Um, They cut a lot of corners. So I, I began to notice that there were just real consistencies in what I would hear Uh, from some companies, and those could be either good or bad. And I really began to listen harder and then do some research and landed on this notion of leader humility. And in my work, uh, as you probably know, I've identified six sets of behaviors that go into this, but the the core notion of humility, uh, it's a little bit different maybe than what you were describing in your introduction because I'm focusing specifically on behaviors and defining it as a tendency to feel and and display deep regard for others' dignity. So it's really about uh, how we are showing genuine regard for other people's dignity. And when leaders do that, uh, it changes the culture, it changes the outcomes in very, very positive ways. Hmm. Now that's that's fascinating because you know so many, especially leaders of big corporations, 
Uh, you know, they, they have uh, incredibly uh, tight schedules and agendas and uh, important people to see. And, and yet you, you hear it's, you know, in, oh, I don't know, in an elevator conversation with, with, you know, a regular employee or a meeting in the company cafeteria, back when we had company cafeterias, uh, right. that, that uh, people would light up when they felt that they were seen when they were acknowledged right. as not just a, a cog in the, the giant corporate machine, but when they were acknowledged as a, a real person. And how have you seen some of that play out with some of the leaders that you've interacted with or, or interviewed? Well, you know, in my work, uh, you know, my whole purpose is to really help people become a leader that everyone admires. Right. So I, I've, uh, really noticed a couple of different types of leaders who manage to get things done. Some get through things done, and as I said, you have people talking behind their back, grumbling, not happy about it. Uh, they're there for a while, but they're not giving everything they have to give because of the leader. And others would really go to the ends of the earth. Um, and, a, and a part of that is really feeling that they matter to the leader that uh, their dignity is respected. And so they'll, they'll not only join in on, you know, achieving the goals, whatever the cause is, but they, they also will give it every ounce of creativity and extra effort that they have. And so that's um, a really important uh, difference. I think we see between the leaders who do show this regard for others and those who don't. Yeah, because you, you, with, with traditional leaders, you know, perhaps those that aren't concerned with the dignity of others, they're they're pushing, they're they're trying to get more creativity, more um, productivity, even out of their teams, and it feels like a slog. It it, it feels like they're right. you know just kind of cracking the whip and just pushing the team forward, versus you know what what you've just described, someone who makes people simply want to behave better and do better and honor the leader. Right. And I would say you're you're inviting the best out of people when you support their dignity. Now, it doesn't mean that their skill is going to be more than uh, it was before. You still, as a leader, have to make sure that you're hiring for the right level of talent, that you're providing the resources to do the job, whether that's training or uh, budget or whatever else the person needs. But assuming that those pieces are already in place you'll get two very different outcomes from most people based on uh, whether you uh, interact with them in a way that supports their dignity or whether you're more um, what I would say sort of the command and control. As you said, you're sort of flogging them to do more. Uh, and, and, you know, that doesn't work in most contexts anymore. Yeah. And we, you know, we see that a lot. I think a contemporary example of that, and I'm, I'm not trying to wade into anything political here, but the current, um, you know, what we're hearing in the news media about the effort to unionize some of the uh, warehouse workers, essential workers at Amazon, where people are feeling, you know, at least if you believe one side of the reports, that they're being pressed uh, beyond what should be a wholesome level for employees to, you know, to be driven to certain levels of productivity. Mm. Now, maybe, you know, in some kinds of industries, you need to measure and monitor to that extent. But I think what the employees are 
are saying and showing in their, um, you know, the, the push that they may be making to unionize is, hey, you're not supporting our dignity by treating us like this. So that's kind of the implicit thread. I'm not sure uh, the company has recognized and addressed to the extent that um, the workers need to have it addressed. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And, you know, when you think about Amazon and their approach to logistics management and, and um, warehouses, you know, a lot of it is automated. You know, they, they, they've got right. robots running around grabbing some of this stuff off the shelves. And, of course, there are humans that have to interact with, with those. I mean, I came from the auto industry. It's the same thing on the assembly line. You've got mm-hmm. part robots, part human. But I think the key there, and, and what I hear you saying is, you don't need to treat the people like they're robots, too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, using that analogy, when when you were at Ford, for example, and Alan Mulally came in, I think you probably experienced a significant culture change because he was a leader. Talk about helping people, uh, helping leaders become someone everyone admires. He was a leader everyone admired, and part of that was he treated people, uh, he respected their dignity. Uh, He basically had very strong leader humility in how he interacted. And my understanding was that that really had a significant impact. You could probably speak to that better than I can. Yeah, he well, he really did. And and I I, I do want to address that part of it with you, too, uh, in a moment, this notion of culture change as part of humility. But... Um, I should mention that Alan um, is is partial co-author of of, uh, The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility, uh, the book that you wrote. He wrote the foreword and he wrote a chapter. Um, You know, amazing. If if you didn't want to buy the book just because of Marilyn's brilliance, you should buy it because of Alan's chapter as well. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about Alan and how he, just in one vignette, how he demonstrated leader humility. Part of the Ford culture, and this goes all the way back to you know, the early days, when, when the Ford World Headquarters was built back in 1954, Henry Ford II had this grand vision. It's a huge building. It's called the Glass House. And up on the, thir- the, the 12th and 13th floors, uh, there are um, the, the executive offices on the 12th floor and then kind of the, the corporate dining room, the, the executive dining room and some sleeping rooms up on the 13th floor. And that's where the board would meet and stay over and whatnot. And Henry Ford II used to pay all of his board members in cash and then participate in poker games with them up there on the 13th floor and, and win back all the money that he, he gave them. So, <laughs> so Alan finds himself up there in this you know mahogany row kind of thing. And he's trying to create this culture of working together. That's Alan's thing, right? We, we are all in this together. And, and he brings himself down to the level of every other employee. He speaks plainly. He doesn't speak down to you. And he makes you feel like you, you, you count. Everybody counts. And so there was one day, it was take your child to work day. And I had my two boys with me who were maybe, I don't know, four and uh, seven at the time. And we were in the audience in the auditorium. And there was a, a time when everybody got to ask questions. And Alan was taking questions from the stage. And the boys had their hands up, but he couldn't get to them just for time purposes. So we just went to the cafeteria afterwards. The boys got their hot dogs and tater tots they liked. And I got a call from Alan's executive assistant, Amy. And she said, Scott, where are you? 
I said, well, I'm down in the cafeteria. Why? She said, come on up to Alan's office. <laughs> okay. So I went up to Alan's office with the boys, and he's standing there in the doorway, just grinning from ear to ear, and he waves us back. He goes, come on in, boys. And he brings us into his office, the office of the CEO of Ford Motor Company. And he has, wow. the, he has the boys sit behind his desk, and he starts talking to them, asking them about school and their interests. And, and he sits down, and he asks them their mom's name. And he takes out Ford letterhead and writes a note to my wife and puts a big heart around it in the Allen style and then has uh, all of us gather with him behind the desk and have our picture taken. And then he sent the boys on their way with a little goodie bag of stuff. And I thought, you know, here's one of the busiest guys in corporate America. And he noted them in the audience. And he took the time to come upstairs and to tell his executive assistant, call Scott and have him and his boys come up here. He didn't have to do that. But it was Correct. just another demonstration of how thoughtfulness and acknowledging dignity and you know just being an approachable, um, friendly person that you, you just want to do right by. Right. And those examples uh, get repeated uh, many, many times. So even if there are 40 other people who didn't have that direct experience from him. They have probably heard examples from people like you and others who did. And so once you hear two or three examples, even if it hasn't been your experience, you perk up and you're, you're willing to go uh, farther than you might have before for that individual. Yeah. Um, you know, as you know, Scott, in, in pulling the material for the book together, I wanted to validate uh, my own research with uh, interviews from some key executives of uh, what I think of as big brand companies like Ford. Alan, of course, was one of the people I, I interviewed. And as you mentioned, uh, also got him to write a chapter in the book on his working together management system. But there were, you know, 11 others uh, in my in my dozen interviewees. And one of them I, I have a personal example with like yours, was Jim Senegal, uh, who, you know, my first introduction to Jim uh, came when I took over uh, running a program at Seattle University, and I needed, my predecessor had needed to leave rather quickly, and uh, there were some tasks that were kind of left hanging, and one of those was to line up uh, speakers for fall, which was at that point just a couple months away, and try to get you know, high-profile speakers on short notice is a real challenge. And so someone suggested I try to reach Jim Senegal, uh, who was co-founder and at the time still CEO of Costco. He was CEO for decades. And I thought, you know, I'll never be able to get a guy like that on short notice, but I'll go ahead and try. So I called his office kind of expecting to uh, speak with his assistant and learn his calendar was just packed. Um, but you know, I need, I needed <laughs> to try anyway. So I, I'm listening to the phone ring and it picks up on the other end and his voice answers, it goes Senegal. And I'm just floored because what other CEO of a multinational company answers his own phone? So I, you know, was thrown back for a minute and kind of stammered through, oh, well, uh, hi, Mr. Senegal, you don't know me from, from Adam, but I'm Marilyn Gist and, you know, I'm, I'm working in this program would love to have you come speak. 
And, you know, he's not exactly what you would say as a warm, fuzzy person, uh, but very direct, very brusque. What's your name again? Okay, I'm going to need to check my calendar, get back with you. What's your number? And so I gave him that and we hung up and I'm thinking, boy, you know, I must have interrupted something he was doing. It's the only reason he answered his phone. Surely he's passing me off to his assistant who will give me a call back and tell me he's not available. So, you know, I'm still a little bit rattled by actually having gotten Senegal himself on the phone when 10 minutes later the phone rings, pick it up. He goes, Marilyn, this is Jim Senegal. Uh, that date works for me. Uh, happy to do it. Uh, you know, what time do you need me there? And can you send me a follow-up email with some information about what you want me to say? I'll be there. And I just thought, boy, you know, he, he meant what he said about checking his calendar. He, he wasn't just giving me a line. He actually picked up the phone and called me back personally when he doesn't even know me. What, what a strong statement about the humility, the leader humility that individual had. I wasn't a nuisance to him. I was a human being who had simply placed a request and he was going to follow through in a, a high integrity way and, and give it the best he could. Mm. Now, a number of years later, I was introducing Jim at a program and he said, I told the story and he said, well, Marilyn, I don't always answer my own phone. But if I'm sitting there, uh, you know, with a moment free and it rings, I will. And I thought, you know, this is, again, a case where you don't have to do this uh, every minute of the day. But examples like that live on. Yeah. And as I met other people who worked at Costco over the years, I heard so many stories about how Jim had a lot of humility. He didn't have a, a reserved parking space. People would notice he would pick up trash off the floor as he was walking through a warehouse. Uh, recession hit behind closed doors in a meeting with managers. He said, keep an eye out for your people and listen. I know times are hard. If you sent somebody is struggling, uh, let us know. You know, we will see what we can do to provide financial support. I don't want anybody, you know, not being able to feed their families or buy gas or whatever. So just... As leaders, your job is to listen for the needs of your employees. Wow. So it was just really amazing to to hear about the humility of the man from other people who worked there. And it began to explain to me why so many people were there 20, 30 years and would still uh, go to the ends uh, of the earth to, to make that company succeed. Yeah. And one of the fascinating things about Costco is that they are this global um behemoth, if you will, to over 250,000 employees in many, many countries, many warehouses. And they reach that size without paying for advertising. Mm -hmm. They don't do it. And, you know, not many companies do that. But what they do is they invest in their employees and they invest in an ethic that says, do what, follow the law, do what's right for the customer. And the employees and that, um, sort of set of policies they have have just lifted the company. Yeah. Wow. So it's well, amazing to the, see what leader humility can do. It really <laughs> is. It really is. And and I think, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but, but what you've really uh, driven down to here ultimately is, is the culture that Jim and his co-founders at Costco 
have created for the company. And, and he displays it every chance he get, whether it's, yes, I pick up the phone when I'm available or picking up the trash in the warehouse or just having one of the, the foldable six foot tables in his office as a desk. He doesn't have a right. you know, big mahogany <laughs> desk. He wears shirts that you can get in the bins at Costco. Uh, you know, exactly. So he is, he is, he is a, a living, breathing example. Of, of what humility means in, in every variety of its, of, it, of its incarnation. And I think w- when you hear about Costco employees, you know, they're, they're not, they're not looking to unionize. Uh, they're, they're not, uh, fighting no. for health care or pay raises. Right. The company believes in taking care of its people. And Jim has made sure of that. It's, it's about plowing the profits back into the company to make sure there, there's a healthy workforce rather than a healthy bunch of shareholders. Right. And I mean, he's done both, but I, uh, there have been media reports where he has had to push back on Wall Street and say, you know, yes, you're saying we could have done even better in the last quarter, uh, you know, had we not invested this much in employees, but I don't see what's wrong with people who are working, being able to, you know, earn a decent wage so they could buy a house and have health insurance. Yeah. (laughs) And so... Uh, you know, what he's done in pushing back is saying, we have to balance that. We're, we're here to have a company that's going to be lasting 50 years, 100 years. And in order to do that, we have to invest in the people who work here and not just uh, bleed off as much profit as we can in order to pay greater dividends to shareholders. That yeah. they are one of our stakeholders, but not the only one. Right. Right. And so, so it's a balance there that, that he's trying to create. And it Correct. seems to me that there's a parallel there. When, when a leader is trying to achieve humility um, or practice humility, uh, it, it's a balance somewhere on the spectrum between meekness and confidence. So how, how do they do that? How, how do they come up with that, that balance and say, yeah, this, this is humility. This is, this is the balance I need to be striking. Well, I think meekness is, undesirable in leaders uh, and arrogance at the other extreme is also undesirable. So meekness would imply uh, that you're weak, that you're unwilling to take a stand, make a decision, express your view, for example, uh, operate independently, you know, that you need to have somebody else's approval on each and everything you do. Uh, Maybe you're lacking in confidence. So that, trait that set of behaviors would not be appropriate for leaders and at the other extreme this hubris or arrogance which is very self-centered uh you know boastfulness uh showiness wanting everybody to see how great i am being concerned about my own career uh that kind of uh behaviors as well is not good for leaders so humility, this idea of feeling and displaying deep regard for others, rests on a core level of confidence, what I call vital confidence, uh, which involves knowing my strengths as well as my weaknesses, uh, feeling confident about leading other people, and that's it. The fact that I can feel confident and I know my strengths and weaknesses doesn't mean I can't also have deep regard for what other people are, recognize that they have strengths as well, uh, have some compassion for the fact that they have weaknesses too, uh, and interact with them in a way that is just um, much more 
uh, honoring, if you will, of their sense of self-worth. So mm. dignity, as I talk about it in the book and, and you know, on the speaker circuit, is really more uh, focused on this sense of self-worth that we all have and we all need it. So, you know, one aspect of dignity is kind of this uh, sanctity of life that um, our culture respects and honors. I mean, we have laws that say you shouldn't go around killing people. And even though there there is some of that in our society, we generally uh, hold that in disdain. That's not uh, acceptable. But it's not only about our physical life. I think we we need to look and realize that of the 7 billion plus people on the planet, uh, no two of us are alike. And while I might be um, better in some ways, if you want to use that term, than others, let's say, you know, maybe I'm taller, maybe I've got a level of education or a job title or whatever that, you know, if you wanted to use a yardstick, you could say this might be higher than that. But on a human level, every person has and needs a sense of self-worth. And that other person I'm interacting with is going to have a set of strengths and competencies and uh, maybe a heart that I don't have. And so, you know, I, I think we need to back away from some of the negative judgments we put on other people or some of the assumptions we make about being better than others and at the very least, think of dignity as involving the whole set of things that go into um, who I see myself as being and the fact that I need a sense of self-worth. And that's going to be tied to a set of things about me that I value. And as a leader, you don't want to step all over that because if you do, you lose my engagement. Mm. I'll begin to withdraw and I'll come in if I still have the job and I'll do what I have to do. But you've lost you've lost my heart and soul. I'm someplace else. Yeah. Well, thinking, you know, you mentioned stereotypes and assumptions that we make thinking in like a meeting setting, you know, when when and it doesn't matter whether you're just leading a team or you're leading a multinational corporation. Uh, there, There's a, a power dynamic there. And, and people assume that because you're the leader that. You know, it's it's the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion uh, that matters. And so how can leaders in situations like that kind of, um, I don't know, defuse the situation or uh, maybe, I don't know if this is the right term, but disempower themselves a little bit and, and kind of bring themselves down to the same level? I think there's a healthy use of power and an unhealthy use of it. So we... We choose leaders because maybe they have more knowledge or more competence in leading people, or we hope they will anyway. Uh, maybe they have more experience in the organization, so we need to rely on them to use the power of their position in wholesome ways as they guide other people. I think that's perfectly appropriate. Uh, they make lots of decisions that they are. Uh, we, we need them to be able to make. But there are other ways in which I think uh, some leaders become accustomed to using power and they begin to bleed over and use it in some unhealthy ways. And one example of that is the arrogance that I mentioned earlier, where they become so full of themselves because they've got the status and power that they assume others are less valuable somehow or 
they they strutted around and you know don't really show much respect for other people. Another way in which they can um, fail to balance this uh, use of power, as you're describing, is when we have differing opinions, uh, conflict in the organization, or you know, I'm, I did, I talk in the book about how. Leaders have to deal with lots of different stakeholders. They have employee groups, customers, senior management, board members, regulators, suppliers and vendors, uh, community activists, and on and on and on. And so it's, um, and particularly as you move upward in your career, it's going to be impossible to lead any kind of policy or operational effort that doesn't at some point run into snags around disagreements or conflict. And what's really important then is for the leader to kind of check the power and use it more to bring people together. Uh, This getting people figuratively in the same room, really listening to what those differences of opinions are. Because a lot of times the people who are disagreeing actually have points that can help you improve what you're doing if you integrate those ideas into the process or into the policy. But what often happens is in the rush to get things done, leaders will either lean into what the majority wants, um, meaning assuming that those who are not in the majority therefore don't count or that their opinion is wrong, or they will simply not listen to what those opposing views are and just say, well, we're just going to do it this way anyway. Uh, My way is the right way and, you know, you're not you're not with the program. And what happens when they do that is uh, really two things. One is it's an excessive display of power because it is not respecting the dignity of some of the people who are party to the conflict or the disagreement. Uh, and the and the other thing that, that they're doing is they're putting the organization at risk because you have to rely on people to implement. And if people are feeling that uh, they were not included or their legitimate views were not heard or given, uh, you know, any serious consideration, then they will pull back from the implementation. And, you know, on a good day, what that means is you have fewer people rowing in the same direction. On a bad day, it means you've got some people rowing against the direction. Mm -hmm. So you're not going anywhere or you're going around in circles. Yeah. So putting the organization at risk is not going to help leaders get to goal either. And so abusing power in that sense by not honoring others' dignity uh, is really a negative thing in terms of the results that the leaders are trying to achieve. Yeah. I think that's such an important part. Uh, you know, we, we discount listening as um, – we- I mean, yeah, you're supposed to listen, but people these days tend to listen to find an opening to kind of jam their point in rather than listening to understand, <laughs> right? Um, last True. week, last week I had David Murray on who wrote the book, An Effort to Understand, Hearing One Another and Ourselves in a Nation Cracked in Half. And I, you, you heard this directly from Alan, you know, seek to be, seek to understand first then to be understood. And it's, it's, like, it's like one of the Beatitudes. I mean, so much of this stuff seems like it's common sense, and yet we, we forget this on our way to 
um, to work or, or to leadership positions. Why do you think that is? Well, I think much of it rests on wisdom that uh, is not entirely new, but I, but what is relatively new, I think, is the, the extent to which our culture has moved away from some of these principles, Scott. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure why that is. If it's, you know, that we've gotten so busy and so sophisticated that we think, well, you know, why bother? I do think the growth of social media has coarsened a lot of our communication. Mm. Um, the, the fact that we can respond quickly, we can respond anonymously, uh, tends to have morphed over time into a harshness. You know, if you're you're on Twitter or uh, some other platforms, you'll often see uh, a lot of anonymous uh, folks who can say whatever they want to say. And, and then some people kind of get on, you know, to the same snarky bandwagon. And um, it has maybe just made us feel it's OK to communicate with each other that way. And perhaps that's, um, I, you know, I don't like it, but maybe some people feel it's OK on social media. But I don't think it carries over well into the workplace and particularly doesn't carry over well when you have power, as leaders do. Mm -hmm. It's not an appropriate way to interact with people. And so I think what's happened culturally is we have we have slid. uh, And then, of course, we've seen a coarsening of our political discourse over the last four to six years. And so I think we've we've lost touch with the human dimension that is uh, behind any communication, the person sitting across the table from you or standing adjacent to you figuratively since we're still remote. But uh, that individual is not just a name and they're not just a Twitter handle. They're a human being that has a heart, that has a sense of their own uh, self-worth. And if you're interacting with them in a way that steps all over that, you're going to lose their engagement mm. and their commitment. Yeah. And it's it's that simple. So what I'm raising here in talking about this issue of dignity is not unique to uh, the United States. A number of Asian cultures have this notion of face, um, not violating somebody's face. It's a similar concept where you don't want to say or do things in the interaction that would that would embarrass that person or that would make them feel less than. Sure. So I think we still need to have high standards and communicate what those are. And we can still, as leaders, hold people accountable for that uh, achievement of those standards. But you do it in a way that supports their sense of self-worth as a human being. Um, And, you know, that's through, You know, behaviors, you know, a lot of HR people will say, well, you don't talk about the personality, you talk about the the job itself. So this is what I expect you to do. Uh, Looks like you're not doing that. How can I help? What resources do you need? Training, whatever. I'm going to remind you of this and check back in in a couple weeks. And if it's still not happening, then we start to escalate whatever sorts of processes we have to try to improve performance or move you on. But you're always doing that in a way that honors the dignity of the person. You know, it's, it's not about uh, putting them down or demeaning them or displaying my own arrogance uh, in that process. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's interesting. And and your observation about social media, I think, is is spot on. This this coarsening of of discourse, uh, you know, when these these quote unquote uh, anonymous or or at least dehumanized um, conversations, because we are just an avatar. You know, we're, we're not um, right. <laughs> we're not sitting face to face. We we certainly. Uh, dishonor someone else's dignity in doing that, but we also we, we lose sight of our own dignity when we do that too. Yes, and, and so there's this reciprocity we, about what I think of myself and what I think of you, and the two kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd like you to say a little bit more about that. Uh, can you describe what you mean by we lose sight of our own dignity? Yeah, I think well, I know what you mean, but I want to understand. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if if. And, and and look, I've had I've had my weak moments online too. Um, the the ability to just kind of parachute in, drop a snar- snarky comment to troll someone, and then hop out simply because you know you you don't like the discourse or you don't like what they've said. It's easy to disassociate yourself from that and to say, well, that that was right. just a comment I left online, versus having to sit down with someone across a desk or or in the same room and make a remark like that to them. You wouldn't do that. Right. So it, it's like, what are you thinking about yourself and your own value that you bring to uh, an engagement, a, a conversation that you would act that way? Well, it's interesting because, yes, you there is that uh, split. You know, you can drop the comment online and leave and not think more about it. Whereas if you're working with someone, uh, you wouldn't say that necessarily in a meeting. But I, but I suspect what started to happen is we, we think it, you know, we, we may not vocalize the snark to someone face to face, but we, we've developed a pattern where we might start thinking that way, which makes us less tolerant of differences. Um, and particularly, as I said, in this coarsening of our political discourse and how that has uh, bled over to the platforms and bled over into work. We, we now have shifted to think about people whose opinions are different are enemies as opposed to people with differing opinions, people mm-hmm. who uh, have an opposite point of view. Can we sit down and can we talk about those views and what's behind them as opposed to categorizing everyone who's different, uh, who has a different opinion as um, an enemy? We have, uh, you know, this notion of, cancel culture which i you know i find interesting because what it it does is it puts a label on something that says i won't entertain the merits of any criticism i'll just in turn say you're attempting to cancel me therefore i will cancel you by ignoring you and so we've really shifted away from uh a deeper ability to communicate with people um, I think as part of this, uh, just the, the way we go about uh, communicating through social media. And, and we need to change that because what hasn't changed in the process are human beings. And what has happened is, of course, we've become more polarized and more tribal. We're communicating with those who do agree with us, but we still are going to need to sit down and resolve larger problems, whether those are in the workplace or whether they're societal and to resolve those problems, we have to talk with each other across the differences in views that we have. Yeah. Marilyn, I'd like to understand from you the the six qualities of leader humility, as you outline 
in the book. Um, how do these all fit together and, and what are they? In the uh, model I present, I focus it around the fact that whenever we encounter a leader, there are three main questions that are in our minds. And one of those is, who are you uh, beyond your name? Um, I mean, I know you're Scott Monty, and we've had some conversations, but if you're my new leader, I want to know what are you made of? (laughs) What are you really like as a human being? So who are you? Where are we going? And do you see me? And leaders provide information in their interactions with people and the decisions they make that answer those questions. So uh, who I am as a person is going to come across to you in not too long a period of time. The direction I set is going to answer your question of where we're going. And the way I treat you is going to answer whether I see you or not. And I use the example of Jim Senegal. You use the example of Alan Mulally bringing your kids to his office. Those were powerful examples of being seen. Um, And so in terms of the six sets of behaviors uh, that really indicate leader humility, they fall under those three questions. So in terms of who I am, the two main things people are looking at is, What's my ego like? Is it balanced? You know, is it confident but not meek, not arrogant? And what's my integrity like? Do I have robust integrity so that you can trust me? And uh, my word is good. I walk the talk. I follow through on commitments, that type of thing. In terms of the direction I set, it's really about the compelling vision and ethical strategies uh, that, that guide the organization I'm running. And so um, compelling vision, you know, Alan Mulally has influenced me here because he considers a vision compelling when there is gain for all of the stakeholders, not just the shareholders. Um, and I would I would say Jim Senegal at Costco in pushing back on Wall Street was doing the same thing. It's what's good for the employees, what's good for the customers, what's good for the shareholders All of that is what makes the vision compelling. And then, of course, uh, being ethical in how you go about it. And then the final uh, two sets of behaviors really are about how I treat you. One of those is generous inclusion. Uh, We hear inclusion a lot in the discussions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's certainly important in those arenas But I mean it much more broadly than that. I'm thinking of it in terms of all of the stakeholders that I've mentioned earlier that leaders have to interact with. And anytime you're making a decision that will have an impact on them, particularly a negative impact or potential negative impact, you want to make sure that you are uh, figuratively picking up the phone and talking to those people ahead of time, getting their input, letting them know you need to make a decision, uh, but you want to understand from them how this might affect them and what their concerns are, and then doing what you can to try to uh, mitigate that, try to reduce the negative impact. Uh, And I have an example I can give on that in a minute, but let me mention the last one, which is a developmental focus, um, helping uh, address the longer-term interests and goals that people have, whether those are your employees or your customers, just doing the things as a leader that you can, that can help uh, advance their long-term interests as well. 
So I don't know um, whether we have we have time for me to share my example, uh, practical example of inclusion, yes. generous inclusion or not. Scott, please, please go right ahead, Marilyn. You, you go right ahead. So, okay. So this one uh, is a Microsoft example. Satya Nadella um, was not one of the people I interviewed for the book because I couldn't get to him, but I would love to have done that. Um, but I uh, know a number of people who are fairly well-placed at Microsoft, and one of them described a meeting recently uh, in, in which um, her team had uh, a need to make a policy recommendation, and there were 10 people involved. Nine of them were for option A, and one person was a holdout, really strong holdout but wanted to go with option B. And they could not resolve this. And they ran out of time and needed to present to Satya. And uh, when they came into the meeting with him, the sort of presumption was that after they made the presentation, the group that had option A in mind would probably win the day because nine people were supporting it. So he listened to the presentation, and then when they were finished, He turned to the person who was for option B and said, I understand that you are, you know, uh, you have a different set of views about this from, you know, the way things have been presented. Tell me what three things would need to be true about option A in order for you to support it. What three things would need to be true about option A in order for you to support it? Really powerful question. It put responsibility on that person to not simply be oppositional, but to work toward the solution. But it also brought out what are the main concerns. And so as that person began to identify, well, I think it needs this, uh, he would turn to the group for option A and say, what do you think about that? And they would go, well, you know, I guess we could make an adjustment here that would, you know, do this instead. And then the person for B would bring up the second point, go through the same process, third point, go through the same process. And at the end, um, he turned to option A and said, well, from what you've said, are you willing to make these three sets of changes uh, to this option A? And they said, well, yeah, we could do it. And then he turned to B and said, are you willing to support it with those three sets of changes? Yes. Unanimity. And that was the way the policy came down. And I thought that's such a brilliant example of generous inclusion, because how easy would it have been to simply say, well, we got nine people in favor of it, so it seems like the best thing we should do. Yet what they ended up with was a much better solution, because it not only represented what the other person had wanted or, or felt was needed, but it actually improved the final offering to the customers in this case. Mm. And even if they had not been able to agree on all three things, I'm betting that the person for option B would have felt better about a decision to go with it as it was because they had been heard. So I just wanted to share that. I think so often in conflict situations, we want to run with what does the majority feel rather than really listening to the people who have a different view and trying to understand why and then integrate that into our solution. Yeah. 
No, I think that's that's such a powerful example. And Satya Nadella is he he is exactly that kind of leadership. He, he it's funny. He reminds me of the uh, the Alan Mulally of of tech in some ways. Yes, <laughs> um, that's that's fantastic. So you know what's what's interesting here is you know as, as we look at the thread through all of this, the acknowledgement of others' dignity and the practice of of humility. Um, it, it seems like there's just the very simple, and I know this is going to sound a little new age-ish, um, it, it, it's, it's the simple practice of love, of, 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 of you know, I, I think about Alan Mulally and how he, he said, um, oh gosh, what do you say, work is love made visible? Is that, uh, am I Correct. getting that right? Yeah. yeah, that's what he says. Yeah, that comes from Khalil Gibran, that's actually. Right. That's but right. yes, that's... Uh, it, it is a form of love, I think, to recognize that everybody has and needs a sense of self-worth. And while I might have more of X than you, my sense of self-worth is no, no more important than yours. You, you have every right as a human being not only to life, but to feel valuable as a person. And um, if I'm your boss or I'm leading in some other context, I, I need to honor that. I need to make sure that I'm speaking and behaving in ways that um, support your sense of self-worth rather than negate it. And I think we, in the rush to get things done, often trample over people's sense of self-worth and we don't need to do that. So going back, as I said, to my work, which is helping leaders uh, become the helping people become the leader that everyone admires. The Alan Mulallys, the Jim Senegals, the Satya Nadellas, those are all leaders who really get this notion of human dignity and who uh, who act in ways that really support others' sense of self worth. They really understand how important that is. Mm. Are they flawless? Probably not. <laughs> I'm not. They're not. You're probably not. But when we, when we have that as a guiding principle for all of our interactions, it makes the relationship uh, much healthier, much stronger. It creates a culture in the organization that is much more wholesome and people, people thrive. They want to be there. They want to be a part of it. Yeah. Um, and they'll, they, they perform much better. The, the research behind this shows that uh, leaders with personal humility, in addition to drive, are the ones that really move their organizations to greatness. Yeah. Well, and I, I can testify uh, firsthand to that, having worked with Alan. You know, it's, right. you, you just, you, you don't want to disappoint him. You know, it's like it, when, when you hear from a parent, that, you know, I'm not mad at you. I'm just really disappointed. <laughs> Your heart sinks. And, and as an employee, right. you, you, when you admire a leader uh, who, who is showing you uh, dignity and, and who leads with humility, right. you don't want to disappoint that person. So, Correct. so Marilyn, I, I want to end with, with this. Um, one last question. Chapter eight in your book is titled The Art and Practice of Humility. Is humility an art or is it a skill? And is it something that can be taught or learned? Or is it something that is simply innate to each of us? I would say it is a skill and that about 85 to 90% of the people can learn it if they don't already have it. Uh, the few who um, may be challenged <laughs> to really learn it 
are people with extremely low self-awareness because this is an interpersonal skill and I need to have some sense of how I am seen by others in order to uh, improve my behavior if it needs improving on that. And if I don't have that capacity, if I can't step out of my subjective sense of self and and have a fairly accurate uh, take on how this is coming across to you, either through listening to you or seeing myself as I might be seen by others, then I'm not going to learn. But most people I've worked with uh, have enough of a sense of self-awareness that with some feedback from others, they can grow in this. And the way I have laid it out so that it's very behavioral and there's really specific uh, actions and behaviors that leaders show uh, really does make it a skill as opposed to um, an art. The, the the term art in the chapter you're describing was really intended to refer more to organization policies. So in that chapter, I talk about both, um, you know, the kind of adaptation of Mullally's work to different sizes of organizations because he has worked in huge ones, Boeing and Ford, you know, what about the small business? How do they uh, use the working together management system? So there's kind of an art to how you uh, take that apart, demystify it, and then apply those same uh, techniques and principles to a different size organization. But there also is an art to how does an organization come up with policies uh, that uh, guide their own work um, that are based in humility. So these might be things like their compensation policies. uh, It could be their performance review policies and so forth. You know, we used at the top of the hour the example of the unionization push for Amazon. Mm -hmm. You know, the company is being challenged to think about what are our policies now and are they based in humility, in respect for the dignity of all of our employees. And so that is kind of an art uh, uh, to get that piece right. Yeah. Well, the book is The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility, Thriving Organizations, Great Results. The author, Marilyn Gist, a PhD. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us, Marilyn, and for really sharing your uh, unique and powerful wisdom with us. Thank you so much for inviting me, Scott. It's been fun. Great conversation with you. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of ourselves. It's about thinking of ourselves less. When we consider the extraordinary responsibility we have for our teams, it's up to each of us to display a deep regard for the dignity of others. That is true leader humility. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader. Leader.